Hi there, I'm Caroline Lee, and I'd like to welcome you to Authors and Audiences. I'm a Scottish Texan, and before I was a young adult novelist, I had a long career in public relations and media strategy. So if you're an author or an illustrator, I'm here to help you present yourself and your books in public with confidence and professionalism. On Authors and Audiences, my amazing guests and I share with you our top presentation tips and key promotion strategies, so you'll always feel well prepared to talk about yourself and your books in any public setting, whether online or in person. And whether you're talking to two people or 200, to make sure that you feel excitement, not fear. So whatever sorts of books you create and wherever you are on your publishing path, Authors and Audiences is for you. Welcome back to Authors and Audiences, and today I'm absolutely delighted to be introducing you to Emily Bain Murphy, the author of two gorgeous magical fantasy books for young adults, who has just this last week published her first novel for adults. Born in Indiana, Emily grew up in the Far East, came back to the US for college in Boston, and then lived, has lived in several places around the US, and now lives in the St. Louis area of Missouri. Now, this is going to be important later on. Her YA novels, The Disappearances and Splinters of Scarlet, were both historical fiction with delicious splash of magic and fantasy thrown in there too. But with her new novel, Enchanted Hill, which came out on November the 7th from Union Square and Company, Emily has not only transitioned to writing for an adult audience, she's also turned to the world of a detective and murder mystery. I'm so excited to get to talk to you today, Emily, so welcome to Authors and Audiences. Thank you so much for having me. I've really been looking forward to this. So tell us a little bit about Enchanted Hill, the new book that came out last week. So Enchanted Hill, um, as you mentioned, is my adult debut. It is a historical mystery set in 1930 over a week of glittering parties on the California coast. Um, it has a lot of fun starlets and old Hollywood glamour, gamblers, filthy rich party guests, and an undercover maid named Cora McCavanaugh, who's actually a private investigator. Um, and so she is the only one at the party who recognizes the true identity of another guest who walks in. So Cora actually grew up as the daughter of a prison guard um, on a fictionalized Alcatraz, which is called Pelican Island in the book. And she befriended an inmate there as a young girl who ended up escaping, drowning, and costing her father his job. Except, of course, he did not really drown. And he is still alive. He walks into this party under a brand new name. She recognizes him. He recognizes her. And they have to decide if they're going to keep each other's real identities secret while they potentially become very unlikely allies to solve a much bigger mystery that has haunted them both. Fantastic. So this is basically based on your life of swanky, ritzy parties on the Hollywood, on the yes, California coast, is it? Exactly. I just, I pulled right from my, my real life experiences. <laughs> Excellent. And so even though this novel is your third book, it's actually your debut uh, as an adult uh, novelist. So why are you now venturing into the adult reader world? Hmm. 
Um, yeah, that's such a good question. I I really ended up venturing into the adult world with this one because it's just really what the story needed. Um, so much of this story is built on um, sort of regrets that had to build off of decisions that happened, you know, 10 years ago and how that really changed many of the characters' lives since then. And so it just didn't make sense um, to have it told from the perspective of a young adult protagonist. Um, and so I was like, okay, we're going we're gonna to go the adult route and give that a try. And it's been a really delightful experience. So when you sat down with the idea, it was it could have been another YA. And then as the idea moved on, you realized it wasn't? Or did you plot it out ahead of time and realize even before you started writing that this was not going to be a YA? Yeah, it's the second. Um, I really have been trying to become more of a plotter and less of a pantser as my career <laughs> goes on. And pretty initially, as I was working through the idea, it, it became pretty clear that this needed to be a, a protagonist that was in her mid-20s rather than her teens. And at what point did you break it to your agent that suddenly he wasn't going to be uh, working on his, his usual YA contacts for you? I went ahead and drafted the first probably three chapters is usually what I do. And I put together what I hope is a really convincing pitch so that he'll give me the green light. And he loved it from the start. And so I was off to the races. Excellent. Of course he does. And I, I should actually declare that I, ha I do actually uh, know Emily's agent, Peter Knapp. And he it doesn't surprise me at all that he loved it because I know the two of you work incredibly closely together. He is so fantastic. I really hit the lottery with him. Excellent. I, I would say so, yeah. <laughs> so the other thing about this story is that it, it's the first one that you've written to move away from magic and the fantasy mm -hmm. side of things and go into kind of more, I wouldn't say gritty realism, given that, that it's all swanky <clears throat> California parties, but it, it is very realistic, even if it's kind of swanky realistic. Mm -hmm. um, there are definitely some gritty, gritty parts of the book as well, which, which was a little bit of a departure for me. Um, yeah, it just goes back again to what the story needed. And the story, um, whereas my young adult books, a lot of the mystery involved um, magic, it, the magic needed to be there to solve the mystery. And in this case, it was just sort of some good old fashioned sleuthing that the, that the detectives had to do um, together in order to try, to try to solve this. And so it felt like I could have added magic potentially, and I was tempted to a little bit at the beginning, but there really was not a good reason for it to be there. Um, and that always presents issues with world building. And so I just decided to simplify and just stick to exactly what the story needed. Yeah. So the other thing that struck me as I was kind of thinking about the three of your books, um, I haven't read the new one yet because it's not out, but I love the other two, uh, is that all three of them are centered around a main character who moves from a place where they feel kind of quite comfortable into a place that is new and really very uncomfortable and even downright dangerous with this new one. Um, well, actually with the other ones as well. But so you've lived. <laughs> You know, growing up in numerous places in the Far East and all over, all over the US, and mm -hmm. so how much of the writing of that 
characters moving to somewhere they're uncomfortable comes from your own experiences, do you think? Mm, I think that is such a fascinating question um, and very insightful. I think that likely that is a lot of why those situations are appearing in my writing, maybe even subconsciously, is I'm always trying to work out things from my real life um, in the books that I'm writing. And so I think I'm very familiar with that um, situation of being the new person, of having to to really world build your real life. You know, you're you're meeting new friends and new characters and learning your way around the new setting. And so in some ways, I think that's really helped to inform um, the world building in my novels. And I also think that having a character move to a new place is, um, is just a great way to organically introduce the setting and let the character's relationships grow alongside the reader. So it's sort of doing both at the same time. Yeah. So it's almost like the, the protagonist is discovering the setting at the same time as the reader as is discovering the reader the does. setting. Yeah, um, exactly. Is the temptation, therefore, to make the narrator unreliable um, because they're either unreliable to the reader or unreliable to the people around them? Because when you go into a new situation, you really can just reinvent yourself and and nobody's going to be any the wiser if you not necessarily change your name, but don't go by a new nickname or or tell, you know, fibs about your past. <laughs> yeah, I think that um that gives you a lot of license for creativity in your writing and also just in real life when every time I would move it was kind of a blank slate, a chance to say, well, a little bit which sides of my personality do I want to to show to this group of people? So, yeah, it's always fascinating, the interplay between fiction and real life. Well, I hope I haven't now scuppered the next book and now you're going to be thinking twice about having somebody go into a new and difficult <laughs> situation. <laughs> think, oh, it's becoming my that. MO. <laughs> okay, so we're, you know, this is authors and audiences. So I'd love to talk to you about your audiences. and. Really, how much you think about them as you're writing the book? You know, we all think about our audiences as we're promoting a new book, but but when mm -hmm. we're writing a book, it's some people think about them very, very clearly and are writing for a particular person or a particular group, and some people mm -hmm. just write for themselves mm -hmm. because if they start trying to please everybody, the books you know go all over the place. Um, mm -hmm. So, how much do you think about your audience as you're writing and? And whether it's, and if you do, whether it's an audience that you know you already have, or whether you're trying to appeal to a brand new audience, which you must be to a certain extent with moving into the adult field. Yeah, I would say I do and I don't think about my audience. Um, I definitely, if I think too much about a particular group or a particular person, I find that it just really stops my creativity flowing and I, I get too scared to keep going. And so I really am trying not to think about, Oh, what would this person think? Or what would this, you know, group think? Um, but at the same time, I am thinking about my audience because I think that it's such an intimate thing to let an author into your mind because they're basically steering your thoughts for those hours that you're, that, that you're reading a book. And so 
I do always want to take care there with sort of the things that I'm introducing. And I personally always try and leave my books with some element of hope at the end, because I always just want to leave my readers a little bit better than I found them. Yes, me too. I kind of feel almost cheated. It's not that I need a happy ending. I just need a hopeful ending. Um, and I feel yeah. a bit cheated if, if that doesn't that doesn't happen. And so how has this new book felt different to the first one, both in terms of creating it and mm. you know, worrying about it? You know, you, you got the nod from your agent, but was there a, a worry that you just would were starting from scratch almost as as mm-hmm. a uh, looking for a brand new audience? So how has that felt different? I think in the creating it. I was able to draw on some of my young adult experience because there are some flashback scenes um, with Cora when she's growing up on Pelican Island as as a the age of a protagonist of a typical young adult um, audience. And so those parts did feel very familiar. Um, and I think writing the rest of it, you have just a lot more material of ways that adults are looking backwards at their lives and and examining the way that um, those choices that they made as young people have impacted who they became. So that was sort of the way that I approached creating it. As in terms of promotion, I think that the adult world, and I, I was actually just talking about this not too long ago with another author who writes for both audiences, young adult and adult. And I think that there is just a general feeling of less pressure writing for the adult market. It seems like there's a little bit more patience with letting a book find its audience sort of like a wave that's cresting as opposed to um, with my young adult books, I did feel a certain amount of pressure in that space to um, just make a huge splash upon release and pre-orders. Now, some of that just might have been myself because I was, you know, new to publishing. And so I was putting a lot of pressure on myself. But um, so I'm, I'm a little unsure. I am the unreliable narrator right now, as to how much of this is reality and how much of it is just my perception of it. But I would say that the promoting of the adult book, I have found more of my voice in the way to, um, to promote through some of the things that I've been doing on Instagram, or just kind of better understanding what I could bring to the table in terms of promotion. Um, and so that's been a lot of fun to discover as well. Excellent. And I suppose to a certain extent, if if somebody was 16 or 17 and a classic YA audience when the first book came out in 2017, now they're, ad- they're an adult. So you are actually yes. shifting. You're just latching on to your aging audience or not aging that's right elderly but as your audience ages they age into your new book i hope so i hope they're going to come along with me for the ride that's that's wonderful (laughs) i'd love to talk to you a little bit about almost like a publishing craft question that hasn't come up Mm. before but when I was looking at the jacket copy for Enchanted Hill, I noticed mm-hmm. that it says it's a book that's perfect for fans, and I'm quoting here, for fans of historical mm-hmm. fiction books like the Molly Murphy Mysteries, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, and Kate Morton books. 
So for anyone who listening who's not deep within the publishing industry already, those are known as comp titles or comparison titles and are an important part of any book promotional blurb. It can be really hard to find the right comp title because you know, especially in chill, kind of like you don't want to say, oh, this is the next Harry Potter because that's mm-hmm. ridiculous. Of course it isn't. <laughs> but at the same time, you don't want to put up a book that nobody has ever heard of because you kind mm-hmm. of lost, lose the point of having a comp title. So how did you come up with the comp titles for this book? And did you come up with them or mm. was was it done within the kind of marketing team at, at the publisher's? So this, um, these particular comp titles were a joint effort between me and my publishing team. Um, I think we really wanted to let people know that they could expect sort of those old Hollywood glamour vibes of Evelyn Hugo. And my big comp title when I was pitching it both to my agent and my publisher and now the audience is... I'm a huge Kate Morton fan. I love her books. They're these, you know, sweeping historical mysteries. They're always usually set at these big grand houses. They're a little bit of a slow burn. Um, And so that is the atmosphere that I'm really going for with Enchanted Hill. And that's why I think comp titles can be so important because it's, it's helping the reader if they can go in knowing what to expect a little bit in terms of pacing atmosphere. Because if they're really looking for a breakneck speed thriller, even though that's also a, falls under the mystery category, um, there could be like this is moving too slow. This isn't what I wanted. Um, and so if you can really help set the the stage with those comp titles, you're going to find the readers that are really going to fall in love with this book. Yeah. Now, I find out something not so long ago, actually, or it wasn't something I didn't know. It was the first time I'd been made to think about it was that, that almost like three different types of comp titles and one is the author pitching it to their agent to say mm-hmm. okay I'm writing no I was about to say Harry Potter and I've just told myself not to <laughs> anyway, I, I'm using Enchanted Hill meet Kate Morton okay. um, would mm-hmm. be another way and so it immediately mm-hmm. says exactly like you've said to the agent going oh yeah I like that idea where it's it's slow and soft but fascinating and full of character and setting, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the next thing that happens is when the editor within a publishing company is trying to sell the idea to the sales and marketing team and the publishing hierarchy, and they're mm-hmm. starting to use perhaps a whole different sort of comp titles, which is about book sales and about the way things mm. hit the market and and cornered the market. So it may be that they're actually quite different books that the editors use to sell the idea as a proposition to the sales team. And then mm-hmm. you get to the the ones that are then selling it to the readers, which, as you say, it's about the readers understanding what they're going to get so that they're not going to be disappointed that they're not getting a the book equivalent of a Fast and a Furious with car chases, et cetera, if they read the books. Right, uh, exactly. It was fascinating that, that one project can actually be used or, or needs to have so many comp titles in different situations mm-hmm. that tell the the recipient of the of the comp titles something very very different about what book it is. I'm gonna as as the podcast go. I'm gonna throw these little kind of 
publishing gems in. Um, and I hope I'm not boring people with getting too detailed in in the kind of craft stuff of publishing. But I was absolutely fascinated no. um, because it was. I know all the books that you were talking about, and it was such a very specific uh, description of your book. I almost feel like I know exactly what I'm going to expect when I start reading it. Oh, I'm so glad. And I would just say, as my little publishing tip. Um, yeah, my favorite book to pitch to other people is my second book, Splinters of Scarlet, because its pitch is so easy. It's um, Frozen meets Downton Abbey, set in 19th century Denmark. And so the the quicker that little pitch can be, that encompasses so much, um, but they know what they're going to get. And so as an author, you have to pitch your book so many times. And if, so, if you can get that just quick little comp, um, to set the stage, it's going to make your life so much easier. So if you can be thinking about that as you're drafting or getting ready to pitch, um, that will go a long way. Absolutely. that I actually use that within when I'm teaching elevator pitches. I actually use exactly that. If you can, if you can give a quick blast in in two or three comp titles, you're at, you're you're winning on your project already. Just something, even if it's something to make the the listener stop and go. Mm -hmm. and want to ask another question so i love that yeah. one. i i did see that one i should have quoted that from that one as well <laughs> so you know back to audiences in general terms do you enjoy doing public speaking and interviews like this and and generally appearing in front of an audience whether it's school audience or grown-ups in a bookstore mm -hmm. it's so funny because growing up I was absolutely terrified of public speaking, hated it, and thought as an author, well, that's fine. I'll never have to do that. So it's perfect. Um, but over the last probably seven to 10 years, I have just embraced it and decided that I was never going to say no to an opportunity out of fear. And so over time, it's become something that used to would have made me break out into just a cold sweat and I wouldn't have slept for, you know, nights and nights. And now it's just, it feels very natural. I, I just get the teeniest bit of nerves, which um, I think are actually good and sort of help you, you know, get through it without being boring. Um, and so I have really started to come to enjoy it. And so I just want to tell anybody out there that's listening, if you really hate public speaking, it is, possible to not only get through it, but actually begin to enjoy it. And my biggest advice there is to just find little places where you can practice. Um, I even would just say yes to reading uh, the scripture in front of my church because it just helped me get up in front of people. And I was literally just reading and it was a very you know low stress environment. Um, and so little by little, just taking these opportunities and not saying no when they came um, because the worst thing you can do for fear is avoidance that will just reinforce it. And so if you can just be breaking it down little by little, that's kind of what I've done. And I can honestly say I, I really enjoy it now. Excellent. And so do you, do you prep for events and do you practice answering, you know, the kind of bog standard questions that everybody gets asked at, at book launches. Do you prepare stuff like that in advance or do you just have this kind of mental database of of stories and answers that you can you can dip into? 
Um, if it's a question that's more experiential, I just kind of go with it. I tell you, I'm still not good if someone asks me like a list question or like, you know, like, what's what's your favorite book or what's the last book you read? I have no idea. I will not be able to tell you <laughs> the top of my head. And so if I have a little bit of a heads up on a question like that, um, I can think about it a little bit and then I'm I'm sort of off to the races. Um, but less and less I'm I'm needing to practice, I would say, and more just rely on the fact that the answer will come and it'll be it'll be fine. Yeah. What's the worst that could you could happen that you have to take thirty <laughs> seconds of silence to think about it? I mean, it may not work in yeah. a radio interview, but but really in public nobody's gonna be, be worried about it. So is there is there a, a an event or a speech that you really remember, I mean, for good or ill, that, that <laughs> was a great experience or a really shocking one that you, you never mm. want to repeat? Oh, gosh. I think that my first event for the disappearances was really special for me. I had actually just moved to St. Louis. Uh, we moved July 1st and my book came out July 4th. So I didn't know anyone to invite for an event, that part was kind of sad. And so I was like, okay, um, I'm going to have a hometown launch um, in Evansville, Indiana, which is where I was born and where my parents live. Uh, and I still have family there. And so that was my, my, my debut launch for the disappearances. Again, I was still in the midst of overcoming my fear of public speaking, but I was just able to get up in front of a bunch of people who have loved me since I was a child. And it was just the most loving, supportive environment. And um, yeah, I still feel really warm when I think about that. And I think that also just went a long way towards just building my confidence in being able to get up in front of people and speak. And so I will always look back on that event um, just with a lot of gratitude and fondness. And also, it sounds like it did exactly what book launch should do which was help you celebrate the achievement yeah when you've written about you've worked so hard for so long and then you've survived the whole copy editing and and proofing and all that kind of publishing process that actually by the time you actually get to the book being launched you just need to stop and celebrate it (laughs) yeah so often we we kind of keep moving the goalposts you know the goal is to is to publish this and then by the time publication you're already setting the goal beyond that I right people just stop and enjoy for a few yes. a few minutes for an hour in a bookstore or at home or in a library or wherever you want to do the party just stop and have a really good celebration of what you've achieved yeah I think celebrations are so key to sustainability and publishing. I'm always telling my friends who are getting ready to jump into the query trenches or whatever it is, like you need to stop and celebrate with every milestone. So if you've finished a draft, celebrate. If you started querying, celebrate. You got to go celebrate when you get your first rejection because it's a rite of passage. And so, yeah, taking those times to really intentionally celebrate, I think it's really important because as you know, publishing is it's a long game. It's a lot of waiting. It's a lot of rejection. And so when you get those high points, I think it's just really wonderful to to take the time to fully celebrate. Yeah, excellent. Well we're going to take a break for a couple of minutes and uh, and then we'll be back to talk about books as business. Are you an author looking to boost your book's visibility? 
or to develop your personal brand in the literary world, or to keep track on all the interesting promotional tools that other authors seem to be using, then I've got a newsletter just for you. Caroline Leach Writes is, along with the Authors and Audiences podcast, my source for you to get expert tips on presenting, promoting, yes, and even perfecting your writing skills. From first draft to final manuscript, from querying to launching to branding, my newsletter will help you with great tips and useful insights to introduce yourself and your books to the world. Join me as I gather in a powerful community of passionate authors and literary enthusiasts and be the first to receive news of my interviews with best-selling authors, detailed marketing strategies that work, swipe sheets so you too can harness the power of social media, and also some occasional writing inspiration that will ignite your creativity. So, whether you're a seasoned writer or just starting your journey, please go to carolineleachwrites.com slash newsletter today and hit subscribe. Not only will you allow me to illuminate your path forward, I'll also send you a free gift just to get us started. Let me help you build up your knowledge, your networks, and help you turn over the next page in your writing career. That's carolineleachwrites.com forward slash newsletter or click the link below in the show notes. Welcome back. And Emily, I know you have an incredibly busy life. So how much time and energy do you spend on the business side of what you do as opposed to on the creative side? So when you're actually doing the kind of admin and the marketing and the promoting stuff as opposed to the writing of the actual book. And I know this will change depending on what time of any year you are in. Mm Yeah, that's exactly right. It's very much an ebb and flow, um, depending on what my energies are going towards. So these last few months have been really um, heavy on the business side of things uh, to promote Enchanted Hell, just lots of publicity. It's been writing articles and, you know, recording podcasts like this, trying to creatively think about ways to have contests or just kind of draw people's attention towards uh, the publication of Enchanted Hill on my social media. Um, And so it's really probably been about 90% business uh, for the last couple of months. But there will be other times of the year, you know, sort of after Enchanted Hill is finished launching, um, where things will settle a little bit down. And then I will be probably more 90% on the the creative side, which um, I'm really looking forward to diving back into. And so does that whole business side of things come easily to you in terms of, you know, social media motion and, and um, doing interviews and, and not so much the presentation skills, but just the organization mm-hmm. and the strategy of it? I think, um, you know, looking back before I became an author, I actually did work in public relations. And I'm really grateful for some of the things that I learned during that time, because I think I've been able to apply that now to um, helping with the PR side of my own career. Um, so just using sort of those those creative juices to think about new and interesting ways to find uh, your audience and keep them engaged. I've had a lot of fun doing various um, sort of interactive games or contests for Enchanted Hill and really getting to stretch um, my creative muscles uh, in a, a slightly different way. Yeah, I saw that you have the most fantastic uh, pre-order gift 
before publication with a bookstore in Charles, Missouri. Presumably, is that your hometown now? Um, Yes, I'm in the St. Louis area and I actually have the pre-order campaign is being split between my two uh, local indie bookstores. I love Main Street Books, which is in St. Charles, Missouri, and then um, The Novel Neighbor is in Webster Groves, Missouri. And I love them both so much that I was like, okay, I have to I have to give them both some love with this pre-order campaign. And so um, they very kindly agreed to partner with me for that. And so how does, I mean, tell us a bit about the pre-order campaign. It was very tied into the party, the party atmosphere mm-hmm. of the book. You know, there was a, a yeah. drinks card and a coaster. And how yes. did, did you come up with all that or did your publishers help you with it? Or I did come up with that. I really, with a pre-order campaign, I really wanted the goodies that people could have to, um, to have a function and have a use and to lend themselves to a really immersive quality of the atmosphere of the book. And so when I was trying to think along those lines, I thought, okay, a coaster for a drink and then a drink card that you could make um, that are sort of uh, geared towards each character and their personality, Cora and Jack, they each have a, have a recipe on the card. And my hope is that people, while they're reading, would be able to make this custom drink, pour it, put their glass on the coaster. And there's also an invitation that they could keep. And on the back, it has a um, a website and a passcode to a secret website. So the goal is to hopefully make the experience really immersive and interactive and help the, the book itself come more alive. The secret website. We like to know the sort of thing that's on the secret website. Or is, <laughs> secret it, su- website, is it too secret? It The secret website just has a bunch of goodies. Like it has a, you know, a themed Spotify list. It has a downloadable, um, what is the, the wallpaper for your, for your phone? Oh. It's got even just like a packing list for your week at at Enchanted Hill. And here's some of the meals. And so hopefully again, it just, it just lets, the reader take one step deeper into this world that sounds amazing absolutely amazing what a brilliant idea and so what sort of things do you do kind of on an ongoing basis you know clearly you've been really pushing for the last couple of months on on the launch but in general terms do you you know do you have a newsletter or some kind of membership or Facebook group or, or something that has an ongoing relationship with your readers in between books? I would say my main um, interaction with readers comes through Instagram. That has just sort of become my happy place for social media and engagement. Um, and so I have found just a really supportive group of readers um, that I've, I'm able to connect with on there frequently through Instagram. And that's really the main thrust of my uh, networking, I would say. I have just found it to be the most life giving platform for me. And so that has been. Um, just part of my journey is figuring out, okay, I, I can't stretch myself too thin to be everywhere to everyone. And so finding out which platform felt the most natural to me. I really like the visual aspects of Instagram. Um, I'm just sort of drawn to it creatively and really have liked the little corner of the internet that I built there. And so um, that that's the majority of my creative energy for networking is going there. So other than Instagram, social, mm-hmm. 
your thoughts on social media? Do you love it or you or do you hate it? I mean, do you do <laughs> X or Threads or Facebook or anything like that? I mean, or do you just keep to Instagram and know that that's where you're comfortable? I am mainly on Instagram. I do have a Facebook page. Um, I am no longer on X and I have never joined Threads or TikTok. Um, and I have just found that this is where I can engage and still protect my creative space and my peace. And so that's just one of the the best things that I have learned over my career is when someone said to me, anything that, you know, costs your peace is too high a price. And so that is how I would advise anyone who's wading into the social media space professionally as an author is, um, you know, this is supposed to be fun and life-giving. And so just find the things that feel life-giving to you and do those. And I think that will naturally come across to your audience. Yeah, That's a brilliant answer because it, it can feel, especially as a debut, that you just have to be everywhere and do everything because everybody else is doing everything. And if you don't, you won't keep up. And as you said earlier, you want yeah. to make a big splash. And actually, you just end up killing yourself by just splitting the atom in a in hundred different yes. ways and not doing any of it very well. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. Finishing off, you know, the main chunk of the the interview what are you working on now you know or had you started something before the push on uh, on the promotion that you're rushing to get back to or you did you put it aside until until you you can clear your head with the launch i do have several things that i'm working on right now um i'm sitting on a lot of secrets and i'm really excited to um talk about them as soon as i can that's I love that. I'm going to be so everybody when when Emily gives us her her Instagram details later on, you have to go and follow because I want to know what all that exciting stuff is already. <laughs> and so, what's the best advice you've ever received as an author, particularly about the presentation and promotion stuff? I would say um, for presentation, I would say that. Just remembering that what you're really doing is just you're just conveying information. And so it's not really people that are there judging you. Um, I will never forget, I studied abroad in London in college, and I really wanted to be an author or go into publishing. And I knew that. And um, there was supposed to be a woman coming who was in the publishing industry. I think she was an editor and she was going to come and talk to us about it. And I was so excited um, to hear what she was going to say. and right before she ended up pulling out because she was so afraid of public speaking that she just couldn't do it. And I have come back to that so many times in times when I was tempted to feel really nervous because really I didn't care at all if she was a terrible public speaker. I just wanted the information that she had. Um, That was like a gift that she could have given to me. And so that's what I would tell authors to keep in mind for presentations is it's just about, it's not about you really. It's just about the information you're conveying and hopefully it's going to be information that could help the people that are there. So if you can frame it that way in your mind, I think it it can go a long way towards helping you uh, tackle your nerves. That's brilliant. Because, you know, even if it's not a self-help book, even if it's, if it's a novel, people are hopefully going to have 
their lives changed mm-hmm. in a, even in a tiny way they're just in, mm-hmm. they're going to be made happy by reading your book or they're going to find a huge connection and, and a big change to mm-hmm. will change their lives from reading your book and if you don't go and help them find it then then they're going to miss that and that would be a shame mm-hmm. so last of all speed round just quick fun and fast answers so are you an introvert i think you've all you've you've kind of answered this already i think but are you an introvert or an extrovert oh i'm such a hardcore introvert i just put me in a room with a book or a computer to write and i you don't even have to check on me for days i'll be fine so how do you recover when you're forced into extroversion I definitely try and make time to recover after. I mean, I set aside, I have put in my calendar for like the day after my first launch, like recover, don't schedule anything. So I will probably take a lovely nap and I will either catch up on some British bake show or I will just read something hopefully very mindless and just kind of come back to myself. (laughs) Um, So do you think of yourself as a storyteller or a writer? Hmm. I think of myself as a writer who has become a storyteller. Nice. And were you read to as a child? Either at home or at school? I was. What, yes. What, by whom and what books do you remember? Uh, my, I remember my mom reading to me a lot. I remember this book about, a, I think it was called The Little Mouse, the red big red strawberry and the hungry bear something like that and i loved that one um focused on food so you know it started from a young age of food and literature um and then i also loved the the brambley hedge books are you familiar with those oh yes i discovered the brambley hedge book when my eldest was was little and we became absolutely obsessed by them and in fact i've got an adult an adult manuscript that I'm I'm shopping out and it has Brambley Hedge in it for because I loved it so much. I'll send I'll send oh, you a picture too. of the page that mentions Brambley yes, Hedge. Yes, would you? I would love that. Oh yes, Brambley Hedge. I think it planted deep seeds again of just that like cozy atmosphere and the feasting and Secret Staircase was my favorite because they got to dress up in glittering costumes. And you, you there's clearly a mouse theme here that you're particularly yeah. keen on, on yeah. books with mice. In. So right. Maybe that should be yes. the next project. You're right. And I loved Redwall too, which was also mice. So hmm. oh. never made that connection before. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> what was the first book you ever bought with your own money? Can you remember? Babysitter's Club. Interesting. Yeah, Babysitter's Club. For sure. So have you looked, have you, there's a, a new TV version of it on Netflix, I think it is. Have you gone back to go and indulge your inner middle grader? Oh, I haven't, but I I have this giant tub of my Babysitter's Club books that I'm so grateful that my mom saved because my my middle daughter has now discovered them and it's saving me a lot of money that she can just read my old ones. I've got a whole shelf of my old books and nobody was in the slightest interest in something. (laughs) It's heartbreaking. I dip into them every so often, but the kids the kids were never interested at all. Um, and where do you write best and most often? And what do you eat and drink while you write? 
I think I write best at a coffee shop because then I'm not tempted to take a nap when things get hard. Um, definitely love a good pastry and a lavender latte. Lavender latte. Oh, I don't know that one. Oh my gosh. They will change your life. They're so good. I love that is my go-to drink. I want oh. this is your homework. You have to go try one and then report back. Excellent. That's a new one on me. And what was your, you know, going back to the presenting and, and, and public speaking, and you said that you used to absolutely hate it. Do you have a memory when you either when you first did it or when you did it as a child that either reinforced how much you hated it or that actually was a, a win that you've drawn on later on? Well, apparently, um, I was a, a lead in my preschool play. I was a doll. And apparently, I knew all of my own lines and everyone else's lines. So. Oh, that was in there somewhere. I guess it's coming back out now. Oh yeah, I my first one was I was cast in a, a school assembly play of the Good Samaritan, and I was heartbroken that I wasn't allowed to be the Samaritan. I was the guy who got beaten up right in the <laughs> at the beginning, and so I was determined I was going to get beaten up and collapse. And I didn't die, but I, I was very, very unwell by the side of the road in the best way possible. I mean, talk about drama. I can vividly remember practicing falling to the floor and and groaning. I'm sure they didn't touch me before I was falling to the floor and because I was so upset. Was it just groaning? No, I think it was just I think it was just being beaten up and groaning and lying there <laughs> while the good Samaritan tended to me. <laughs> very strange. But I have a very, such a very clear memory of of the disappointment of not being the the guy who was actually had the lines, the hero. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, what do you wish you'd known back in 2017 when you were first published uh, that you know now? I think that I would tell that person in 2017 that you will have more books. You are not a one-hit wonder and uh, all the imposter syndrome you feel can go pound sand. Would she have believed you if you told her that? I think she would have been encouraged by that. Not Given her dubious. something to hold on to and to hope for. Maybe a little, maybe a little, you know, imposter syndrome. I have to tell it to pound sand often. So that's not one that particularly goes away, but it is getting a little bit better. Excellent. And so you've already answered this. Tell us again what where your favorite bookstores are uh, so that we can link in the show notes so that people can choose between one or the other to buy your new book. Oh, wonderful. I will never get tired of shouting about my favorite indie bookstores. Um, so Main Street Books is in um, St. Charles, Missouri. And The Novel Neighbor is in Webster Groves, Missouri. And they're both just the most charming, adorable stores. And they're filled with the very best people. So if you're going to spend your money on books, please go spend it there. Wonderful. Well, we will put links to that in the show notes. And if if we have intrigued you with an Enchanted Hill desire, then uh, please go and, and buy it now from one of the two links in the show notes. Uh, 
That would be wonderful. So absolutely finally, where can people find you on Instagram or elsewhere? Yes, uh, you can find me at my website, which is www.emilybainmurphy.com. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook at Emily Bain Murphy. It's a very distinctive name that you, that uh, kind of doesn't need anything else attached to it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Emily. It's been absolutely wonderful to actually have this time to have a proper chat. And uh, uh, I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to to help you promote Enchanted Hill, having loved your first two books. And uh, I'm looking forward to what happens next when we hear what these hugely exciting and very, very secret pieces of news are. <laughs> well, hopefully I can come back because I've had the most lovely time. It's so great to be with you. And I thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Emily. Take care. Bye. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Authors and Audiences, and I'd love to hear about anything that resonated with you or what questions came up that you'd like me to answer in a future episode or in one of my Instagram Live Q&As. If you have learned something today, or if you have a question for me, please reach out to me via my website at carolineleachwrites.com or on any of the Authors and Audiences social media pages. All of those links are in the show notes below. Please subscribe to Authors and Audiences wherever you get your podcasts so that you won't miss any of my amazing guests or my presentation and promotion craft tips. And remember, any five-star ratings or positive reviews that you give me will make sure that all those pesky algorithms let other authors and illustrators find their way to authors and audiences so that they can feel confident about getting out there in public too. Thanks again for joining me. And I look forward to having you back here with me next time on authors and audiences.